This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Europe, the end of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligum, a Makan Shah, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetoch, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestin Echol. Vientalam Aginom Griv, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He tried to portray himself as a benign despot for the good of his people. But yeah, he was a bit of a head case, quite simply. Today on the Indo-Daily, Gaddafi, guns and the IRA. He was an extraordinary character, fancied himself as a bit of a film star, plastic surgery, dyed hair. A massive Libyan arms shipment to the provisional IRA in the 1980s had the potential to dramatically escalate the troubles into a civil war. The seizure from the Exund, worth more than three and a half million pounds, included a thousand Kalashnikov rifles, 20 SAM-7 missiles, a million mortar shells and 10 heavy machine guns. A new book recounts the capture of the Exund with 150 tonnes of modern weaponry from dictator Muammar Gaddafi on board. It was deeply personal by then and he just kept stipulating, use them, use them, use them, my only condition. I'm Fiona Sheehan, and today I'm joined by John Downing, political correspondent with the Irish Independent, to recall the Exund gun-running affair. John Downing, the, the 1980s. Yeah, a crazy time. The best way maybe to tell this story is I remember mid-1980s, uh, going uh, after the pub, buying a few bottles of beer and going round to a friend's house. And there were five or six of us there. We had all, we were school contemporaries. I was the only one with a permanent job. I was the only one with a car. They were all actually unemployed, my, my friends. And at the time, and they, they were kind of signing, signing on the rock and roll, as we called it, on the dole. And they all had some kind of a little fiddle, which you'd have to have if you were ever to have any kind of a life. But it was a very ramshackle time economically and for it was a very troubled time from the point of view of Northern Ireland. The uh, June 1981 general election, Charlie Hawhey lost that election for a number of reasons, but a lot of it was to do with the H-blocks, the hunger strikes. Bobby Sands and nine others starved to death in protest against... Uh, prison conditions and and um, not getting prisoner of war status as prisoners. At 17 minutes past one this morning, Mr Bobby Sands, the IRA MP for Manor South Tyrone, died. Northern Ireland Secretary Humphrey Atkins issued a brief statement saying Bobby Sands had taken his own life 
by refusing food and medical attention for 66 days. The response in Belfast was immediate and violent. For light relief, we had Johnny Logan, we had Eurovision wins, we had... We had Dallas we, we and J.R. Ewing. J.R. Ewing, and we had... Uh, um, we had ABBA, uh, who were actually bigger than Volvo at the time, in, in as, as Sweden's primary export. And Euro 88 and Jack Charter rounded off the yeah. decade. At the same time, you know, as you mentioned, the, the hunger strikes with, at, with at the start of the decade... The IRA's campaign on, on the mainland as such, uh, around London, you saw the Hyde Park bombing, the Harrods bombing, um, you know, pretty savage attacks there, there which caused obvious uh, tensions between London uh, and Dublin. And then we had the absolute brutality of Enniskillen in 1987. Yes. A Remembrance Day atrocity in Northern Ireland. A bomb has killed 11 and injured more than 60. It was planted a few yards from the war memorial in Inniskillen. It went off without warning. A building collapsed on top of them. 13 children are among the injured. At the same time, the IRA's arms and where they were getting their munitions from was, was coming under scrutiny. And we've, I suppose we have a greater understanding now of where all that was coming from. Absolutely. The IRA were, were in a very difficult spot in the mid-1980s. They, they were running out of money. They were running out of arms. They kind of had enough to keep it going as a, as a low kind of irritant in the background. And they reckoned they could keep it going for about 20 years. But they had a major rethink and they decided they absolutely had to escalate what they were doing. They had to do vastly more of it. They had to be far more brutal. They took their inspiration from what was called the Tet Offensive in 1968 in Vietnam, when uh, the Viet Cong just suddenly and surprisingly pumped up the war. Now, they could not defeat the US, but what they were trying to do was bring a realization to Washington that this really was no longer worth the candle. And the IRA's hope was if they started hell for leather, doing far, far more in the north, but also taking the war to uh, Britain very much more and even uh, elsewhere in Europe. We had, for example, you know, later came to fruition, attacks on German bases and the botched attempt to bomb Gibraltar. We had all of these type of things. Well, how were they going to do that? Where were they going to get the money? Where were they going to get the arms? A new book out, Gerardo Fuelon, uh, historian and, and author, A Broad Church, The Provisional IRA in the Irish Republic. Part of the, the fascinating installment during that period that he goes into is the IRA's relationship with one Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, Indeed. dictator of Libya. Indeed. And it, that was the central answer. I was saying to you, how are the IRA going to step up the war? How are they going to pump up the action? The uh, One word, Libya. And the link with Libya goes back to uh, the early 70s. It came via Breton nationalists. Gaddafi was a guy who had, who had staged a bloodless coup. The man who led the military coup was a young colonel, Muammar al-Qaddafi. With the same iron fist with which he ruled Libya, 27-year-old Qaddafi kicked out British and US forces from the country and nationalized the oil industry. He had a visceral hatred 
of the West more generally and Britain very specifically. He had supplied arms in the early 1970s. Uh, famously, it, it came to light in 1973 when a boat called the Claudia was arrested off Waterford, off Helvick. And who was on board? Only Joe Cahill, a veteran IRA man from Belfast, very senior figure. He was among those on board. Gaddafi went cool on the IRA through the latter half of the 70s. The relationship was again rekindled in the 1980s. Gaddafi was quite a high-profile figure, and part of that was because of his image. Yeah, absolutely. He was, I suppose you don't get to be dictator of a medium-sized North African country by hiding behind the door. He was uh, an extraordinary character, uh, fancied himself as a bit of a film star, plastic surgery, dyed hair, uh, Lawrence of Arabia type uh, image uh, in his tent, in his Bedouin tent out in, in, the, uh, in the desert. He had his green book. Mao had his little red book. Uh, Gaddafi had his green book, his philosophy about life. And he tried to portray himself as uh, a benign despot for the good of his people. But yeah, he was a bit of a head case, quite simply. During that time, he, he was uh, effectively a sponsor of terrorism. Uh, Lockerbie, after all, that, yes. that disaster and the, and the, and the bombing uh, of, a, of a plane there traveling over Scotland at the time, it directly linked back uh, to, to, to Libya and to his uh, regime. So the relationship with, with the IRA rekindles because you have, you, have the, you have a series of shipments, now relatively small, as you say, I mentioned the Claudia, there was the Casamara, the Kula, the Via, up to the mid-80s. And then a, 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 the name of a ship that became quite infamous, the Exund. The Exund, indeed. Tell us about the Exund. The, there were four shipments on various boats. There was a man called, the, a very important link in all of this was a travel agent who had gone bankrupt, a man called Adrian Hopkins, uh, he had a, a company called Bray Travel, which spectacularly went bankrupt, leaving people stranded, leaving people losing their deposits on their holidays, all that sort of stuff. Mr. Hopkins reinvented himself in, in the shipping business, chartering boats, ostensibly, we were told. But through uh, a friend who was an IRA sympathiser, he made uh, contact with the IRA. Thomas Slab Murphy, who... Uh, who frequently occurs in dispatches about the IRA. He met him in, in a pub in Dublin called the White Horse. It's, it's on the quays. It, sorry, it used to be on the quays beside the old Irish press offices directly across from Liberty Hall. And he gave him fortunes of money. And he was the guy who variously hired, hired boats, bought boats, refurbished them, renamed them. And he had done four that we know of successful shipments from Libya. The Exund was going to be the daddy of them all. He uh, was, it would have been the equivalent of the previous four put together. Uh, there were a lot of difficulties with it. There were two Donegal trawler men and there was the head of the IRA engineering, Gabriel Cleary, who was a man from Tala, very low key operator. The guards knew about him but they had never, never laid a glove on him. Uh, and uh, he, he was the main man. He was very, very technically proficient in bomb making and ex man managing explosives and armaments and all of that. And he uh, 
he was the, the main man in the whole thing. Unlike the previous IRA arms shipments, this thing had to be offloaded on the had to be loaded on board the Exund in port in Tripoli in Libya. And of course, the place was coming down with spies and surveillance of all kinds. And this was a big shipment. It was yeah, hard it was to, to, to hide here. It's, we were looking at Kalashnikovs, uh, heavy machine guns, the SAM-7 missiles that surfaced the airs. They were to, to take down helicopters, yes. the RPG rocket launchers, grenades, ammunition, and Semtex plastic explosive, which featured in a, in a heck of a lot of IRA bombings at, at this time. At the Exxon trial, which I subsequently covered in Paris in 1990, this uh, the Exxon was described as a travelling warship. It had enough to send, you know, to, to, to send half of Ireland into orbit. There was a thing called the SAM-7, which the IRA were obsessed with because they wanted to take down British Army helicopters, which were, uh, you know, uh, the absolute essential link piece in the occupation of Northern Ireland, bringing uh, troops, personnel, equipment, supplies from one base to another. Very, very of great practical benefit to the IRA in their killing uh, sprees, but also a huge, would would have been a huge propaganda coup for them. Now, Gaddafi is supplying these weapons, not so that they can be put into bunkers, but actually be used uh, at the time. His only stipulation was use them, use them, use them. Uh, Among, this was very personal to him by then. In 1986, there was a bombing U.S. The U.S. bombed Tripoli and uh, hit at his, right at his core. One of his daughters was killed in that bombing. Of course, they, the British had facilitated the, uh, the U.S. bombing, so it was deeply personal by then, and he just kept stipulating, use them, use them, use them, my only condition. So there... This uh, Irish uh, crew is sailing this rather large ship out of the port uh, of Tripoli, but things start to go wrong. Gabriel Cleary, the IRA's head of engineering, had a terrible pun, unintended sinking feeling about this from the very start. Uh, They were being buzzed by uh, RAF uh, aeroplanes. by the time they got as far as Gibraltar in the Mediterranean, they, one of the planes came down so low that Cleary could actually see the pilot. So he thought that this this is this is not a good thing. And meanwhile, there were a, a, a engine difficulties, other technical difficulties with uh, the Exxon. Its steering was was very very poor, all sorts. So eventually, by the time they get around out of the Mediterranean, up the uh, Atlantic, up the coast of Spain, Bay of Biscay, so on, uh, they're off the north coast of France. And Cleary says, right, this is it. We're just going to have to. The fallback plan was sink the boat, scuttle it, and uh, uh, go ashore in France on a dinghy get the train, get the ferry, go home, Mm -hmm. tell no one. So he had, in that eventuality, Gabriel Cleary had already made an explosive device to sink the boat that would cause maximum damage, uh, minimum uh, kerfuffle to alert the authorities. When he went to find his uh, already made sabotage bomb, 
he found that somebody had interfered with it. He couldn't use it. So he had to, they had to leave the boat. Uh, suddenly, they were descended upon by armed French customs who arrested the whole lot of them. The boat was towed into Brest and on we go. Huge coup for the security services who were able to, to, to say that there was joint cooperation to, to combat uh, terrorism on, on the high seas. You recall covering the, the, the trial in Paris of these individuals? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, they had been in prison. This was, it was March 1990. I was in Paris to cover the trial. Um, uh, f- five of them arraigned. Uh, they got extraordinarily light sentences. They, they all spoke. Um, basically, they, they praised France, uh, liberté, égalité, fraternité, and all of that. And they said, look, you guys, we, we have nothing against France. In fact, we've got most of our, of our ideas from you guys in France. And look at our flag and look at your flag and so on. Uh, so they, they got very light sentences. The Irish government's reaction to this, it, it's curious at the time because we still have a relationship with Libya during the 1980s, despite Gaddafi being regarded as a, as a pariah. Yeah, we had a strange sort of symbiotic relationship with, with Gaddafi. A lot of it was to do with beef. There were contacts. Uh, Charlie Hawhey in opposition went and visited. Um, Albert Reynolds had considerable business connections before, during and after with Libya. Libya was considered at the time to be, it was oil rich. It was just rich, full stop. Uh, Also, there was a huge market there for beef. And Ireland at the time was so uh, abysmally dependent on EU intervention that uh, anywhere that would buy beef from us. And a lot of, they were trying to open markets in the Middle East at the same time. You know, I mean, basically engaging with the gang of toenail pullers and, and you know, basically thugs of, of one kind or another, uh, as was Gaddafi also. But Any it was a market. Would do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, basically, if they buy beef, we'll have them. Mm. And that was the curious thing. So we had this trade and diplomatic relationship with uh, a country and a leader with whom we knew were actually supplying a terrorist organization trying to undermine and subvert the state. And some, uh, I mean, the four earlier armaments brought in by by this group, they were were landed at Clogga Strand in Wicklow. They were landed at an old roadstone pier that was little used near Arklow. And they were dispersed around the country into bunkers. And uh, the idea, this if they had brought the Exund home and its cargo, it was going to be put into one huge bunker somewhere in the southeast. And it would be then later dispersed piecemeal to various smaller bunkers and to what were called ASUs, the active service units along the border, in the north, and uh, and all the rest. Huge doubt within the IRA as to whether they could actually, A, could they do it? And B, if even if they did, could, had they the personnel, had they the expertise, had they the nous to use these things? So it, it was it was a mixed bag for the IRA, a time of, of considerable... Uh, worry and anxiety for them, let's just say, organisationally. Irish government 
went about expressing concerns to the Libyans at that time. Jerry Collins, the famed foreign affairs minister, saying it would have been catastrophic had these uh, weapons reached Ireland, and and we're we're expressing our our. Our, our, our troubled feelings towards the Libyan yeah, regime. Basically, diplomatically shook their fists at, at Tripoli. And, uh, but I, I don't think Colonel Gaddafi was quaking in his boots as a result of any of that. And my thanks to John Downing. I'm Fiona Sheen, and today's episode was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Sorsha Mulgrew, with sound by Gavin Hennessy. Archive clips from ITV, PBS, ITN, BBC, RTE, the EBU and Johnny Logan's What's Another Year. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.